you ever notice that I'll keep it with me once. Okay, I had it, now I'm gonna put it down. It's like uh, when a guy gets up to share a few thoughts, he goes and then he verbalizes them. <laughs> we don't share thoughts, we speak thoughts. We share words. Small play on words. Anyway, so tonight is class. And uh, this is something that happens here generally on Tuesday and Thursday evenings. And uh, that's on a normal week. And recently, uh, we've been going through the stories of the Exodus. And so I'm going to continue that tonight and uh, talk about the next step and where we're going. So last time, last Thursday evening, we talked about the, uh, the Red Sea crossing. And tonight, we're going to look at what happens to the Hebrews after they leave the, uh, the Red Sea. Let's see if I can get my slides up. Let's go with this. So the title of tonight is By Every Word. And that's taken from a uh, passage of Deuteronomy that we're going to look at in a little bit. So over the weekend, when Kevin Koblitz was here, he made a statement several times, actually, throughout the course of the weekend. And the statement was this, and it, it ties nicely with what I want to talk about tonight. God is enough. Now, I remember hearing this statement a number of years ago. Somebody said that they were learning that God is enough, or that God is showing them that he is enough. And I, I remember feeling kind of confused about that because I didn't really understand what that sentence meant or what that statement meant. We tend to use the word enough in relationship to our needs. So you might uh, get to work in the morning and somebody says, did you get enough sleep last night? Or maybe you're working in the kitchen and there's a big crowd and you're worried that you're going to have enough food or enough water. When I was, um, when I was backpacking in uh, China a long time ago, uh, we were worried about getting enough oxygen because we were up at a high enough altitude that it made it difficult to breathe. We tend to use the word enough with things that we need. Enough water, enough money, enough food, enough sleep which you never get enough of that at Mountain View. There's something satisfying that we feel when we think that we have enough. So you're a Hebrew, getting ready for a trip to the desert. How much is enough? How much would you pack so that you have enough? Oh, the other thing about this trip to the desert, you see the little you know, pillar of cloud up there? That's your guide, and you don't know where it's going to go, and you don't know how long it's going to stop when it stops. Because throughout their wilderness experience, there was times that it stopped for a year or more. And when the cloud stopped, you made camp, and that was it. And you didn't know when you were going to leave again. You stayed there until the cloud moved. But they haven't had the manna yet. They just left the Red Sea. And you know that people that make mistakes in the desert don't come out alive. A number of years ago, there was a guy that was trying to cross, and I, I can't, I should have looked at the story, I heard it recently. He was trying to cross, I believe it was a desert in Arizona, hiking. It was like a 100-mile stretch or something like that. No, it was Death Valley, if I'm not mistaken. They found him within 100 yards of his truck. He made the whole trek across, stopped for a rest, within sight of his vehicle and never woke up again. That's what the desert did to him. Mistakes in the desert are fatal. You don't survive the desert if you're not prepared for it. 
And the Hebrews know this. And as a matter of fact, in Exodus 16, 3, just, which is something that happens just after what we're going to talk about tonight. And the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots, and when we did eat bread to the full. For ye have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now God has already proven himself a few times to the children of Israel up to the point when they said this. But what they, the statement that they make here is accurate. And they know that. They know that if you don't have enough in the desert, you die. Those are your options. Either you're prepared or you're not. There is no middle of the road. They know that God can part the Red Sea. But what can he do in the desert where there is no water at all? And do you think that maybe for some of them there was a question in their minds when they're by the standing by the shores of the Red Sea and the pillar of cloud comes around in front of them and starts to move off into the desert? The manna hasn't fallen yet. They still literally, the only provisions that they have are what they can carry on their backs or maybe pack on their animals. And I'm guessing, I don't know, but I'm guessing some of them wondered, how are we going to survive in that? So God actually has a few reasons for taking them into the wilderness. And in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is kind of recapping everything that's gone on up to that point. And he makes this statement in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness, to humble thee, to prove thee, and to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldst keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee, and suffered thee to hunger, and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread, by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. So Moses identifies the reasons for the hunger and thirst in the wilderness. You like to have answers sometimes? Well, Moses gives them some. Two reasons that we went through this. To humble you and to prove you to know what was in your heart, and so that you learn that man does not live only by bread, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, we can look back on that now and think, well, that was nice. They, they you know, learned their lesson well. Would these answers satisfy you if you were in the desert and had nothing to eat or drink? And you cried out to God, and God said, eh, sorry, Nate, um, I'm doing this to humble you and to see what's in your heart so that you know that my word is enough. And you think, yeah, but I'm still thirsty. Yes, but I'm still hungry. The answers feel differently when you're already in the desert. But if you read through the Exodus story, Strangely enough, you read that God sees this time with Israel in the desert as their honeymoon. Now, they didn't spend a lot of time at the beach, unfortunately, some. But God actually looks back on that time in the wilderness and says, you remember that time, that wonderful time we had back there in the desert when I carried you? And he refers to it as their honeymoon. This is the time when God is getting to know Israel, when Israel is getting to know God. When Israel is put in situations where they have no choice but to rely on God, and God provided for them. When God proved Israel 
and saw what, was, what they were made of and what was in their hearts. So Moses writes that God desired to prove Israel. Now that word prove is a Hebrew word, nasa, which literally means to tempt. And it's all throughout the Old Testament. You know, God tempted them here. They were tempted to do this, that sort of thing. And uh, in this case, it's translated as prove. Now we think of proof or proving something as um, a set of facts. So in other words, if you're having a debate with someone, and if you're smart, you, uh, you are able to use the set of data to prove to the other person that your way of looking at it is correct. That's what we, that's what we generally think of when we mean by prove. What the Hebrew word that's translated as prove here means is so that you would know experientially what's in your heart. So when God says in Deuteronomy, I did this to prove you, or to, and he actually uses the, uh, the word here again in Exodus 15, when God says, I did this to prove you, what he's saying is, I brought you through this experience because I was curious to know what was in your heart. I wanted to see what was there. And not just me, but you also got to see what was in your heart when you went through that experience. You can think of it this way. Um, I can tell my children that I have a toothache and they can see dad laying in bed with something hot on his face and in misery. And they can know that dad has a toothache. Or they can get a toothache for their own a week later, for themselves a week later, and really know that daddy had a toothache. In other words, they experienced it. They didn't just know it in their minds, they experienced it physically. That's what it means when God tested them. He wanted them to experience what it was like. So, God is going to prove into the prove Israel in the desert. So you come to the first test in uh, Genesis or Exodus 15 at the waters of Marah. So, Pharaoh and his army are destroyed at the Red Sea. There is now, now no longer any going back to Egypt. I talked about this last week. That's one thing that the Red Sea did for them. They no longer had the ability to go back. Which means when the cloud goes into the desert, you have no choice but to follow it. Or you can stay here by yourself in the Red Sea. But going back to Egypt is no longer an option. That was the one thing that the Red Sea crossing did for them. One of the other things that the Red Sea crossing did for them is it takes Egypt completely out of the equation. Pharaoh and his army are destroyed. They no longer have the ability to come after Israel. So you have this defenseless nation who's carrying the wealth of Egypt going into the desert. And actually, in just a few weeks, Amalek is going to attack them. And years later, when Balaam comes and uh, is asked to come and curse the nation of Israel, he marvels over the camp of Israel that this place is so wealthy, that these people are so wealthy and so unarmed. And yet God protects them. He talks about that in his prophecies over Israel. But for now, they've crossed the Red Sea. Egypt is gone. It's still in their hearts. They just don't have to worry about the Egyptian army anymore. They can't go back. They have this amazing, triumphant worship service on the shores of the Red Sea. The cloud moves, and they go into the desert. And three days later, the situation looks a lot different. So what's today? Wednesday. So Sunday... Imagine Sunday you stood at the shores of, I don't know, whatever body of water you're familiar with, 
and a bear was chasing you, and you saw God open up a trail through the water for you, and you went. Would you be feeling fairly confident in your relationship with God at the moment? That this was this past Monday, not last year, not 10 years ago, this week. You'd still be writing about it on Facebook. That's how long ago it was for them. Three days later, they went from a worship service, not a service, a celebration, by the shores of the Red Sea, to this, Exodus 15, verse 22. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they, spent, and they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Marah. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Now there's a, uh, I believe it's a current uh, writer that said civilization is only three days from anarchy. And he is absolutely correct. If you had your water supply shut off, and not just you, but uh, let's say someone had the ability to detonate a bomb over our power grid, knock out all power in the U.S., our civilization would collapse. You couldn't flush your toilet. You could not run your well pump. You could not turn on the lights, heat, nothing. That's not very long. Now take yourself into the desert, where it's 110 degrees during the day, or whatever it is. It gets down to 40 at night. Now, God did provide a fire at night and a cloud by day, and we don't read that they ever complained about the heat and the cold in the desert. But it's still hot. It's still dry. You're still very thirsty and beginning to wonder where the water is going to come from because you're not the only person that's thirsty. Your children are thirsty. Your animals are thirsty. Did you ever see the dust cloud that gets kicked up by people going through the desert? Imagine that coating the inside of your lungs. You're not thinking about the Red Sea anymore. You're wondering where your next drink is going to come from. That's how fast things can change. And the Bible says that they complained. For those of you that know German or Dutch, Pennsylvania Dutch as I do, which we actually share a, fair, a few words with, uh, with the Hebrew language for some reason, the, the word is quetched. And in my understanding of that in Pennsylvania Dutch, is it, it's like, yeah, something down that line. That's what they were doing to Moses. Yeah. You ever hear children whine? God, do you know everybody that whines in our house? <laughs> Not him, certainly. So, they're in the wilderness. They finally spy a water source and you imagine the first person running up to that well and I don't know if you've ever been in the desert but uh, there's nothing like cold water when you're hot first person runs up to the well dips out a pitcher and it's bitter and you can't drink it do you ever have salt water in your mouth it's not all that refreshing now what because it's not just that the water was bitter. It's that you were in need. You didn't have enough. You weren't experiencing that God was enough. You were in need. And all of a sudden, you see the answer to your prayer. And you run to it, and you realize that it's not an answer. 
It's just more disappointment. And that happens. That really does happen. And in many cases, you're actually worse off emotionally after that than you were before because you thought you had found the answer and then you realized that it wasn't actually an answer. They're not happy about this. Now remember, God wants them to learn by, to learn to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Not only by food, but by every word. <laughs> Can you imagine? Um, you're up at the well, you took the first drink and the water was salty, and you're like, why? And your friend says, this is God teaching us to learn to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. You would have a few things to say about the Lord at that point. Seriously, that would not be helpful because you still have a need. And the waters were called Mara. People complained against Moses, not like it was his fault. Although it's possible, because Moses did herd his sheep in this general area, it is possible that Moses knew the well was there, was grateful that God was taking them to it, because it was good the last time he, was, he had gone that way with his sheep. We don't know. We don't really know exactly what was going on here. But anyway, the result is that they complained against Moses. It's not like this is his fault. He's not necessarily in charge of the pillar of fire and cloud, but they complain against him. And they use the word Mara, which is, uh, I'll just write it here for you. Now this word is used quite often in the Old Testament. Now there's a number of different forms of it, but it's all going back to the same root word. It means bitter or grief. Those are, the, those are generally the two ways it is translated. Um, Naomi was named Mara after she returned to the land of Israel after losing her sons and her, uh, and her husband. Isaac and Rebekah, when Esau married local wives who were not of their tribe, it says they were Mara about that. Now, the King James translated that, translates that as grieved. Um, I think there was another example. Oh, one other, one other way of, uh, one other form that, of this word that's used is uh, mar, mar e. That's how it's transliterated. Um, and it means rebel, rebellious, or rebellion. And so when Samuel tells Saul in 1 Samuel 15 that rebellion is as, as the sin of witchcraft, he's using the root form of the word Mara. This is as the sin of witchcraft. Now we don't know if the well was named Mara before the children of Israel got there. I'm not sure that it really matters, actually, because the word Mara, as it's used here, could be referring to more than just the water. It's probably also referring to the hearts of the children of Israel. When they were in need, and they thought they had an answer, and didn't, they were bitter about that. Rebellious, actually, is another way you could, you could translate that. And uh, Moses actually, in looking back, Later on in Numbers, I believe, um, where this word comes up again. Um, but actually, no, I'm not going to talk about that. We'll get to that another time. 
So if you'd like to hear out what I was going to talk about, you can put it in an application. We have some in the hallway. We'll be getting to that in a couple of weeks. <clears throat> you're in the what? You're in the desert, and you have the word. Was that enough? So much for Israel's first test. God said, I want to test you. I want to prove you. I want to see what's in your heart. I want you to experience what's in your heart. Let's have a look. How do you respond when the answer isn't really the answer? When the answer is things just got worse. So did they pass or did they fail? Some of you are old enough to be able to look back at your life and to see that there were times when you were stressed out and fearful and uncertain and struggling with faith because you didn't know how things were going to turn out. And then you get to the end of that period, whatever it may have been, and you look back and you were like, God just really showed up in a way that I was not expecting. And he provided for me in a way that I was not expecting. Why was my faith so weak? I've had times, I can look back in my life and see times like that, where when I was in the moment, I could see nothing but what was going on in front of me. But as time has gone on, I look back and I think, why did I get so worried? God provided. He took care of us. Made me feel a little foolish for not having more faith. Well, there's going to be many more tests for the children of Israel. This is just the start. The point of the test I want you to get this. The point of the test is not whether we passed or failed. I don't even think that's really the purpose of the test at the Waters of Mara or any of the other tests. The better question to be asking is, did I learn? Did I grow? When the test came, did I learn that God is enough? Did I learn to trust God a little more? Did I walk in obedience even when it was hard and I was hot and tired and thirsty? Was I humbled and broken in a way that caused God's grace to flow through me? See, we have our, we have our side of the story that we look at and we can think, boy, I blew that one. And yet I think sometimes God looks at the same response that we do and he says, yeah, maybe you could have done better but I really like what I'm seeing. Because you changed. And you got to know me a little better. And the next time you come to one of these tests, you're going to come with the experience knowing that God is able to provide for me, even when I'm weak. It's easy to say that if you're on this side of the desert. But notice something about this story. God does not scold them for complaining. There's going to be times later where the Israelites complain and he sends a plague. Or the Israelites complain and he sends snakes. Not this time. Actually, if you look at some of the wording over this, over Exodus 15 and later on in chapter 16 with a couple of other things they experienced, God actually seems to... Um, seems to be okay because what he, his view of it is they are asking, can you provide for us or not? And God's saying, yes, I can. These are opportunities that I'm going to show you that I can provide for you. 
We could say that Israel, fa Israel failed this test. They complained, they grumbled, they got upset. But at the end of the day, it doesn't change the fact that they were thirsty. And you know what? God provided for them. And shortly after this experience, <clears throat> at the end of the chapter, they come to a place called Elam, where there are 12 wells, 70 palm trees. It's a beautiful place in the desert. And they stayed there and rested for a while. It's almost as if God is saying, that was tough. Now come, let's go over here, and we're going to take a break. <clears throat> Can you imagine their attitude when the water became sweet? All of a sudden, they realized that God could provide, and that maybe the word of his mouth is enough. Maybe we can live by that. Back to this idea of, of the Israelites complaining and us thinking that we fail. <coughs> so if you're like me, you've grown up all your life hearing and memorizing and reading verses like 1 Peter, be holy for I am holy. Things that talk about perfection. Things that we tend to feel guilty about because we see a standard and we know we can't live up to that. But we also read verses about the Lord being compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and of great mercy. And I think we forget sometimes that God might have a lot more patience for our failures than we do, especially when we're in the desert. There's another lesson that's going on here. If you read the rest of the story in Exodus 15, I'm moving on to verse 25. And he cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. And then it goes on. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved to them. That's that word proved again here. God shows Moses how to heal the waters of Marah. God said, or the scripture says, that God showed Moses a, a stick, or a tree is also a way that could be translated, and said, Moses, I want you to take that, and I want you to throw it into the well. Now, Moses is well acquainted with a stick. <clears throat> He's got one. <clears throat> He's had one for a long time. As a matter of fact, three days ago, it parted the waters of the Red Sea. In a few weeks, Moses is going to take that same stick and walk up to a rock and strike it, and water is going to come gushing out. Not too long before this, Moses lifted up the rod, and darkness came across the land of Egypt. And before that, locusts came. And before that, thunderstorms and hail and fire came down. Oh yeah, Moses has a stick. And Moses knows what to do with that stick. But not this time. Now, I don't know exactly how Moses responded, but imagine Moses is standing there. The people are complaining. Moses has his rod, the rod of God. And God says, Moses, I want you to take the stick and throw it into the, into the, into the well. And Moses grabs his rod, and God says, no, Moses, not that stick. I wish you used this one. Now, I don't know exactly why God switched things up on Moses like that. But is it possible that God was also testing Moses at this time? Saying, Moses, you and I have a way that we're used to operating. I tell you something, you grab your stick, and things happen. Moses, 
Are you okay to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God? And when things don't go the way you want, the answer might not always be the same. So Moses takes this other stick and throws it in and the waters become sweet. But I wonder if Moses didn't learn a lesson. And that is that Moses was just a stick. And God could use him to do this and to do that. But God could also use someone else and work in a different way, in a way that Moses might feel left out. And as a matter of fact, 40 years after this time, that would exact, exactly that would happen. And Moses would face bitter disappointment because God was going to use someone else. And Moses found out what it was like to step aside. But in reality, isn't that what we are? We're sticks. Joseph, in the land of Egypt as a slave in prison, was a stick. Abraham moved when God told him to move. A young girl named Mary was told she was going to be the mother of the Messiah, and her response was, Be it done unto me according to thy word. In other words, whatever you say. People were killed over the course of our history. Things didn't go the way they expected, but they were a stick, and they allowed God to use them just like you and me. The question is, will we learn to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, or do we want to have control over the stick? Is it mine? Is it for me to dictate what happens? Is it for me to buck God when he wants to use me in a way that I don't like? And when things happen that I don't like. Or is it for me to say, God, this is your stick. Here it is. If you want your power to flow through that, that's great. I'm in. And if not, it's going to be someone else. This was Israel's first test in the wilderness. They didn't do so well. You look at other characters throughout the history of our people, men like Moses, men like David, people like Bathsheba, they made awful mistakes, and yet God used them to change the world. And their stories are told today because they were willing to let God use them. All right, that's all I have for tonight. I assume there will be announcement when supper's ready. Arlen, or how did you want to run that?